You've seen the best. You've seen the worst. Now here's the rest of both worlds. I'm Gayfesh, and now you know. And I'm Ari, and knowing is half the battle. And I'm silent. G.I. Joe! And today we will be discussing the Star Trek The Next Generation episode, Symbiosis. Uh, Silent, welcome to the show. Um, (laughs) And uh, you nailed that. I I have a habit. Uh, When I drink with my best friend, we will at some point watch compilations of all the Fensler film, G.I. Joe, what do you call them? They were like YouTube poops before YouTube poops. I don't even know what you would call them. What's a YouTube poop? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'll tell you later. Okay. Um, But yeah, Silent, welcome to the show. We're friends from the Demon Mama community. Uh, Actually, I think I'm the one who got you into Star Trek. Is that right? No, not quite. I've definitely watched Star Trek before I talked to you, but I did, like, your love of Star Trek did sort of push me towards getting into Star Trek Next Generation and uh, watching it more regularly. Hmm, that sounds familiar. Yeah, how far are you into that show now? Uh, I'm about halfway through season four right now. Nice. I, I lost access for a while, but uh, I've got a, I've got a plug for Star Trek again, so I am making my way through season four. That's a good season to get through. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, tell me a little bit more about your relationship with Star Trek. Uh, what have you seen? You know, what does it mean to you? Uh, I've mostly seen original series stuff. I must have caught an episode on like sci-fi or something in my early teens. And it has that like delicious combination of like solid science fiction writing, sort of like a, the lightning in a bottle of like a perfect dynamic between your Kirk, Spock and McCoy, but also just like the absolute jankiest absurdity <laughs> that can happen at the drop of a hat. Like an episode can seem really normal and then it'll just end with like uh, Ron Howard's weird looking little brother laughing with a really bad, like uh, dubbed over voice. <laughs> That's right. That was Clint Howard. What? That was Clint Howard. Yeah. <laughs> He's my favorite weird little guy that does things. <laughs> <laughs> that was an original suit. Se- he was in the original series as a little kid. Yeah, he he played a little alien where they didn't even put makeup on him. He just looked like himself as a little <gasps> kid. I you know, had no rather idea. Unfortunate. I, I think they put a bald cap on him. But other than that, it was just and then they had like uh, some but like an adult dub over his voice. So he felt more alien. But it was just like, hey, kid, you're ugly. Why don't you be an alien? <laughs> Yeah, let's get Opie's little brother in here. <laughs> That's so weird. Okay, something I didn't know. <laughs> I want to say they gave him weird eyebrows. That seems like a thing they would have done. Mm. Uh, something like that. Something easy, yeah. Either that or they just actually shaved his head because he was... <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, all right, let's get into the episode. All right, today we are talking about symbiosis. It is the... 22nd episode of the first season. It aired on April 18th, 1988. The teleplay was by Robert Lewin, Richard Manning, and Hans Beamler. The story was written by Robert Lewin, and this episode was directed by Wynn Phillips. Okay, so they get um, a distress call while they're looking at, like, solar flares. And the, uh, the guys who are running the ship have absolutely no idea how to run a ship. Uh, they're giving very vague answers like, yeah, I don't know. Shit's broken. Yep. (laughs) Um, yeah. Can you help us? And, and so they end up having to like, um, beam them over because they're like falling into, uh, the gravity well of a planet, but they beam over their cargo first and then they're only able to get like four of the six passengers on the ship. Mm Mm-hmm. 
And two died. That's right. Yeah. 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 Two died and nobody seems to care about the two that died. No one gives a shit. Yeah. I noticed that. There's like two different species and like they're squabbling over the cargo because one species had sold it to the other, but the payment was lost in the ship that just blew up. But uh, it turns out it was medicine. Quote unquote. Quote unquote medicine. Actually, it was red lentils. <laughs> I think it looks like use. lentils. Yeah. They, they use lentils. <laughs> Beverly uh, examines it and finds out, no, this is a narcotic. There's and but it turns out there's this whole thing where the aliens who are selling it, their planet's entire industry is making this drug and they're rely on everything else for the the people that they've got hooked on the drug uh, uh, to, you know, uh, pay for everything else. So they're just an entire planet of drug dealers. That's that is the episode. I mean, that's basically the the synopsis. I mean, and, uh, you know, it's Star Trek. So we have our prime directive. Oh, uh, should we interfere? Should we not? And all that stuff. And uh, I feel like we'll get into that. But uh, that's uh, basically the episode. Oh, yeah. I also forgot they shoot force lightning at each other. Yeah, they definitely shoot force lightning at each other. That. I, I don't get it. Why did they do that? To make them aliens? The nose thing wasn't enough, I guess. I don't know. I was <laughs> weirded out by that, too. It almost seemed like maybe a writing backwards situation, where they're like, well, we need them to present a threat, like, later in the episode. But obviously, they would have had everything, like, confiscated, so how would we get around that? That's true, because they did hold Riker hostage a little bit there. And they mm-hmm. and then even Tasha said something like, it's an impossible weapon to confiscate. Or something like that. I think it was Sasha that said that. Mm-hmm. Surely just, like, make them wear some sort of electrically, like, uh, insulating suits in order to prevent them from using that. Um, it actually reminded me of an original series episode. It's actually a rather uh, famous episode, Let That Be Your Last Battlefield. You probably don't know it from the name, but you do know it because it's the one with the dudes who have... Half of their face black and half of it white. Oh, that sounds familiar. With the Riddler? Yeah, it's it's yeah, it's, it's the episode where it was just blatant racism because it's like, well, they're bad because they're fa- they're all white on the right side. We're black on the right side, so they're bad. And, but it also turned out that like these were like immortal aliens who had like supernatural powers that they would use to fight each other with, and it felt like that. Huh. There are some things about it that do feel a bit like an original series episode, which is why I did want to ask, is this one of our like little leftover scripts that they had kicking around, or was this an original? It's an original. Actually, um, I had thought that they had used more uh, scripts from Phase 2 in this, but there's only a couple that they end up actually using. I think uh, The Child, which will be the Season 2 premiere i think that one was modified from a phase two script and then there's the devil's due in season four which is a phase two script as well and that one feels very tose but overall i think they had some they took mostly like character ideas like in phase two when they weren't going to be able to get spock they had the character of zon who was going to be a full vulcan but who was very fascinated with humanity and wanted to learn more Mm. about it and they kind of rolled that into the character of Data. Um, um, and then they had Commander Decker and uh, Ilya, who ended up being Riker and Troy. There were a lot of things that they worked in from the Phase 2 scripts, but I think as far as actual scripts used, they only ended up using two or three of them. Right. I guess that does make sense, because uh, it's hard to imagine that the resolution would have played out anything like this if we'd had Kirk as captain. <laughs> <laughs> How about that resolution? Beverly actually says she's able to like develop a a, a way to you know b- basically like a Narcan or something to 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 right. 
help wean them uh, through their um, withdrawal symptoms uh, without A non-narcotic uh, version of it that'll help them with the withdrawal, yeah. And Picard says no, because that would be interfering with them in, in, in violation of the Prime Directive. And this is an episode where I think Picard got it wrong. I had a big problem with it. I had a problem with it because I still don't, in the context of the show, understand the Prime Directive. I Because they just throw it up there and say, this is against the Prime Directive, but don't explain to us why. Because right. it's just like, here, it's against the Prime Directive. And I was like, you, the whole season you've been doing these things that would like, be, if you're saying this is against the Prime Directive, then like most of the other episodes you've done are against the Prime Directive. That's what I've got in my notes. Like, they keep saying that this is a Prime Directive issue. Is it? It doesn't feel like it maps onto being a Prime Directive issue as easily as like some of the other ideas that they've been kicking around so far in the show. It is a Prime Directive issue. I, I think it's a case where the Prime Directive gets it wrong, but it is very much a Prime Directive issue. Uh, helping out a ship that's like in distress and is about to crash, that's not a Prime Directive violation. They're already a warp-capable species. And they were asking for help, so that's okay. But interfering uh, in the uh, like political and internal affairs of other planets, that would be a violation of it. If they were like appealing for Federation citizenship, then there would be like, well, in order to be a Federation citizen or uh, a member, you have to uh, meet these criteria for your planet's development and for your cultural norms, because we want to make sure, you know, uh, we don't invite genocidal people into the Federation. But mm-hmm. If they're just their own people, it's not the Federation's place to step in. Mm-hmm. But this mm-hmm. is a case of clear exploitation. Yes. And uh, the the idea of the Prime Directive is basically um, a pretty liberal approach to avoiding colonialism. Right. So there's a lot of good that comes from the philosophy, but I don't think this would be a case where helping people stop being drug addicts would be colonialism. No. Especially because Beverly, like, it sounded like it would have been easy for her to whip it up. Mm-hmm. And here we have people who basically have forgotten how to take care of themselves. They've basically forgotten how their ships work at this point because they've been drugged out of their mind for 200 years. Right. And the other people, the drug dealers, they don't know how to do anything else. All they know how to do is make drugs. <laughs> I guess there is a, a perspective there where interfering with that could cause the collapse of that species mm-hmm. because their entire industry is just that. I don't even think they were a warp capable species. It's just the other species was, and then they got the disease and they found that other planet and they knew how to make the drug, but they didn't have much else. And so they were able to get lifted up by selling drugs. Right. Which is really unethical. Like the whole thing about it, the whole thing was super unethical. But the questions that I kept thinking while I was watching it was why? Why? How did they get to the point where they like so they're so they explain that the um oh, I forgot the aliens names, but the drug addict planet, they um they are very or Naren. Oh, thank you. They're very um, technologically advanced, right? That was what they said. Very technologically yeah. advanced. But then after 200 years of taking meth every day or whatever, they aren't smart enough to even run their spaceships. But, I mean, I think w- the world would have, like, ground to a stop a long time ago. I don't think you can get an entire 
planet addicted to a very dangerous drug that makes them really stupid and then not have some sort of impact that like lasts going on i don't think it would have lasted for 200 years and now we're finally running into bumps in the road i don't i don't know something about it rubbed me the wrong way well in the way that that they're portrayed like the the drug dealers are portrayed as the ones who are more intelligent and more put together. Obviously, they aren't addicts; they're dealers. But right, if their entire industry is relying on these other people, like they shouldn't seem more, they shouldn't seem smarter than the people who are providing all of their basic needs. Yeah, there there are some like foibles, I guess, with the the concepts here that they require more justification than this episode can provide. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can agree with that. I mean, I think I think it was something they just kind of glossed over and were hoping we would just accept, I guess. But here we are in a podcast where we talk about it. So I'm looking at the <laughs> whole episode like, well, this doesn't quite make sense. And this doesn't quite make sense. The more I think about it, the more I feel like this concept for a Star Trek story, uh, it could have been very well justified and felt like everything made sense if they had made it into a very boring two-parter. But instead, (laughs) we got like a a very watchable, well-paced bottle episode that kind of doesn't make sense if you look at it too long. Well, true. I think it makes a little more sense if you consider the era that it came out in, where uh, we had Nancy Reagan just say no and all of our after-school specials. Because uh, halfway through this episode, the show stops... So that uh, uh, Tasha can explain to Wesley and all the kids watching how drug addiction works, how drug addiction works. Yeah, (laughs) I have written in big uh, capital letters in my notes. Did Nancy Reagan write this? (laughs) Well, I I don't think it could have been Nancy Reagan because when we're considering it as an anti-drug episode, it's definitely ahead of its time in that the uh, the Onarans are presented as like very relatable, not relatable. But sympathetic, sympathetic, yeah. yeah. The the Arnarans are very sympathetic. They are treated as victims of these, mm-hmm. this addiction, and it's made very clear that in no way is this addiction their fault. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're tr- that is very true. If we put ourselves into the 1988 mindset, it is a very progressive, like forward thinking type way to look at addiction. Because as we know now, does addiction is a disease, a disease that can be treated. And, and in '88, not a lot of people were agreeing with that they were being painted as evil and villainous super predators super predators yeah see i i figured it was addiction right away and i don't know what triggered me because i wrote uh, into that because early on i said why can't bev recognize addiction and withdrawal symptoms well she did as soon as they took it but yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's uh, they're 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 very clearly playing junkies like right from the get-go you can see it mm-hmm. before we really get to see them when we're just hearing over like the staticky call uh, they really read more as just sort of inebriated than specifically like narcotic addict. Mm-hmm. But yeah, as soon as we see them in person, and I, I would give Beverly some credit. Like, it definitely seems like as soon as she is understanding that she cannot locate what the actual disease is, mm-hmm. she she has this like air of like heavy suspicion from that point on. That's a good point. Yeah, and like, uh, it did make me think. Like, a great concept for a Star Trek episode would just be to do House MD, but in space, right? <laughs> there have been a couple like that, I want to say. I can't think of one directly off the top of my head, but um, uh, Crusher has had some, you know, focal episodes where it is, you know, like working to treat something. Actually, in Deep Space Nine, uh, Bashir, I think, spends a whole uh, episode trying to cure a, a, a planet of, of an affliction. 
you get some uh, medical centric episodes in in Star Trek. It's interesting that you say that too, though, Silent, because in my notes I was like, oh, they did an ER type, West Wing type walking talking shot, which I hadn't really seen them do in the series. And it was right at the beginning. I think it was Riker and Tasha, but they're like walking and talking through the corridors. And it reminded me of like a shot from ER or a shot from House where they're walking through and discussing all the things it could possibly be before they break off and go do the things they need to do. Oh, this could be a watershed moment for Next Generation then, because they're going to be doing a lot of that from now on. Like the oh, realization that, well, yeah, the realization that like, ooh, we can deliver a lot of exposition, but if they're walking through the the uh, ship's hallways, it is a bit more interesting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I haven't really paid attention to how much uh, hallway dialogue is, has been in the first season, but that's, yeah, that's a staple. They're always doing walk and talks through the corridor set. Which is also like, very much on display in-house. Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> Denise Crosby um, uh, left the show in the first season, and even though this is not the episode in which she leaves the show, this is the last episode that she filmed. And if you look at the end of the episode when Picard and Crusher are walking out of the cargo bay toward the turbo lift, mm-hmm. if you look in the very far back, just for a split second before the doors shut, you can see Denise Crosby wave at the camera. See, I knew that was coming because you told me that and I looked for it. And in my brain, I thought it was in her last episode. I had not tracked it was in symbiosis. Yeah, it was in this one. So I missed it. You, you, you'll have to go back. Yeah. It's in, it's in the like the last like two, three minutes of the episode. I'll have to go um, back and look. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I, I, I didn't I didn't catch it the first time that I was going through. I'm just like, wait, wait, th- this is the end of the episode. That should be it. And then I looked. I'm like, yep, there she goes. <laughs> she just like is standing there, and then she goes bye. The first half of this episode did feel like a showcase for Tasha, for sure. I thought it was a very good opening. Like the whole part of it, I thought the whole opening bit was good for Tasha. Yeah, I liked it as a Tasha episode and as a Beverly episode. Well, and to talk about Denise Crosby, um, she actually said that um, uh, the writing for her character in this one and in Skin of Evil, she said that if she had been given more episodes like that. Uh, throughout this series that she wouldn't have left because uh, she really liked, especially in Skin of Evil, she really liked the writing for her character in that one. So it was her choice to leave then? It was her choice to leave because she said she felt like she was underutilized. There were times where she would be like, look, literally all I'm doing is standing uh, 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 up on the horseshoe on the bridge doing nothing. You could just get a cardboard cut out of me, have fake legs there when you're doing the close-up shots of Picard and nothing would change. What am I doing here? I can see that. The first half of this episode definitely is giving her a lot more to do, but also it's really unclear what her job is if this is the only episode of uh, Star Trek Next Generation you see. Because at the very beginning, it almost feels like she's doing the uh, Galaxy Quest, just sort of repeating information everybody knows bit. She informs Picard that the... Uh, the, the view screen interference uh, is bad because of the sun radiation while it's like visibly tearing and there's a bunch of static. <laughs> <laughs> and and then her big moment with the, the, the moments that sort of made her the MVP for the first half of the episode was uh, linking up the transporters, which a, a thing that I, they justify it well enough in the in the episode. It sounded mm-hmm. like gobbledygook to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, it's actually seemed a little implausible to me because they would be alien transporter systems. I wouldn't think there would be any compatibility there. But um, it was fine. What just? Yeah, it struck me that it was Tasha doing it because Tasha's a security officer. She's not really an, an engineer. Um, I, I mean, 
uh, clearly she knows how to work the transporter, but that seemed like it was outside her wheelhouse. Yeah, mm-hmm. I thought I had that thought too. Although I think with Star Trek, uh, especially, and you see this in like uh, the episode where Wesley was applying for the Academy. Uh, it seems like the implication is that basically every Starfleet officer is a polymath. So even though they might have a specialty in one area, uh, they basically could do any job on the ship. Mm-hmm. Sure, there's definitely some of that. It's a bit ironic that the one thing that would have been within her literal job description would have been like to protect Riker whenever he got taken hostage. And is she even there? I don't even remember if she was in there. Yeah, I don't oh. remember either, yeah. Yeah. For being the security officer, she has a lot of random odd jobs, and she's not always involved in security either. It's, it's, it's. I don't know, It's. I kind of understand Denise Crosby's feeling on that when I heard you say it. I was like, yeah, I kind of see it. I don't think they quite knew what to do, you know, but if anyone really has this complaint, it should be uh, the guy who plays Worf, because his, speaking of a character they never use, that guy, I feel so bad for him. Well, just wait. Uh, you're in season one, so he's you know very underutilized. But uh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, a, a rare Riker taking worst place of getting warfed here. Yeah, that's right. Um, of getting warfed. So there's there's a TV trope called the Worf effect. Okay. In which Worf is the biggest, strongest person on the Enterprise, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, every week, when the alien beams aboard the bridge because security doesn't exist on, on in the future. <laughs> um, <laughs> The first thing they do is pick up Worf and throw him across the bridge so that he crumples against <laughs> okay. the wall. Right, right. Yeah, okay. <laughs> to, to show that they're a threat. But the effect of that is that we keep hearing how Worf is this big badass warrior, but every single week he gets his ass kicked. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, can we talk about how much I hated their outfits? Uh, all of them. I hated every single one of them. But uh, Sobe, I think the main guys was. Oh my god, I hated his outfit so much. I was like... It was a vest, but it wasn't a vest. It was sewn that way. <laughs> and I, was, I, I just hated everything about his sparkly vest outfit. And I just <laughs> wanted to bring that up. <laughs> I do have some notes about the costume. I actually, I, I got the impression that Sobe, uh, Sobe is one of the Breckians, uh, which when we first see them, they just kind of look like the bad guys from an 80s ski movie. <laughs> yes! <laughs> With the hair and mm-hmm. everything. Yeah. Right. <laughs> But comparing his costume uh, to his uh, partners, it definitely struck me that, like, hmm, costume designer was way more into working on Sobe's costume. We had, like, a contrast of color and material. It seemed like it fit better. It actually reminded me a bit of the season three and onward uniforms, but with, like, a V-neck on it. There's, um, I forget his name, but uh, the costume designer for uh, the original series and for the first season of TNG uh, was a gay man, so you are not wrong there. I was just about to bring up because we talked about this with Riker's outfit when In he Angel had to put 1. on that. Yeah, I was trying to remember which episode it was when he has to put on the fancy, you know, low cut one nipple showing outfit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, I had a really funny moment when they figure out that the um, that the two guys are carrying the disease. They're like, "You're carrying the plague." And the guys look at them and I'm like, yes, every single student in my school that says, where can I get a COVID test after spending 20 minutes talking to me? (laughs) They do this. They come in, they have conversations with me, they act like everything normal, and then they hack into their arm and then they're like, hey, can I go to, do we, do we have COVID tests here at the school? Yes, we do. And why are you here? Go to go get a COVID test. (laughs) But it reminded me of that because I was like, oh, yeah, of course, they're just walking around having the plague. You know? Oh, thinking back to Denise Crosby, there was a couple years ago on Twitter, uh, 
Rick Berman, cursed be his name, uh, tweeted a picture of a combat, which was uh, Denise Crosby's combat. And he said uh, that, uh, and he tweeted saying, um, Denise Crosby gifted me her combat on her last day filming on Skin of Evil, and it's been sitting on my desk for 20 years. And then Denise Crosby replied, my last episode was Symbiosis, not Skin of Evil. And after I finished filming, you walked up to me, ripped it off my shirt and said, guess you won't be needing this anymore. Oh, wow. I know nothing about Rick Berman other than we all don't like him, apparently. But that's so that's so terrible. It's incredibly <laughs> shitty. Wow. What a dick. Mm hmm. I kept thinking the Force Lightning Fingers was going to have something to do with the plague and it didn't. Yeah, that would have been that would have been interesting. Like, uh, I don't know, maybe this has a spice melange thing where, it, yeah, it's a narcotic, but it gives you powers. Hmm, maybe. Maybe the drug does give them powers. Actually, I think they, they said it was due to the, um, like, the, the solar flares, because uh, it was a very active sun, and so they, like, absorbed oh, more energy or something like that. Okay. Yeah, they, catch they that. had a brief explanation of it. It ended up having nothing to do with the episode, and I think we it was just so that they could threaten Riker. At some point. Yeah, it's a good point. Right. Yeah, I mean, by the end of the episode, the the whole thing of the the solar flares felt like it was completely forgotten. I know they just kind of like we spent the first five minutes. Oh, I really love that part when they're like mask out the photosphere and they just put up a big black circle over the main part of the sun, <laughs> <laughs> which like lazily glides up to block it. Right, right like they're dragging it with a mouse. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> right, at, right after Picard had his like uh, Donald Trump lunar eclipse moment of just staring directly into the sun. <laughs> and it's a view screen. It's not like uh, there are some Star Treks where the screen actually is a window out. But this is just this is just a screen. This is just a projection. It, so why is it so bright? Why would they have its maximum luminosity be something that could damage your eyes? That could hurt your eyeballs. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I did think it was interesting going back to the, um, you know, and knowing is half the battle conversation that Tasha and Wes had, that I'm not sure I've actually seen Tasha and Wesley have a lot of interaction. And so I wondered if it was between Tasha and Wes on purpose, or if they were implying, and it seemed to be pretty well implied that maybe at some point, you know, back when she was on the terrible planet, Tasha had a problem with addiction as well. I wasn't sure which one of those it was supposed to be. Mm-hmm. I assumed that she was a, a recovered addict. Yeah, that's kind of how I took it. Yeah. One thing I really liked with that scene was, um, despite having no lines, the degree to which Data was really actively trying to be in that scene. Oh, I didn't notice. Is he just like in the back making faces? Uh, well, it keeps cutting to him directly, but he doesn't really <laughs> say anything. Interesting. Uh, yeah, it, it seems like he was really interested in any time Wesley was saying that he just couldn't understand the idea of like wanting to be addicted to something. It really made me wish that we would end up with like a B plot of like a uh, Wesley. I've managed to put together an apparatus here which will simulate the effects of addiction for you so that you can <laughs> finally understand. <laughs> Data or would me- do that, wouldn't he? And he wouldn't get why it was wrong. I know. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if he was staring at him, though, because he was surprised to see a human being not understand a human feeling. Because Data's used to not hear- understanding human feelings. So maybe it was like, oh, hey, humans also struggle with the understanding human feelings. Well, that that's that's kind of my read. Uh, especially Data's like, ooh, here's an opportunity for me to learn. And I didn't have to ask the question. Mm-hmm. <laughs> True, yeah. I didn't have to be the one that everybody looked at and was like, Data. <laughs> So, 
I take a strong, strong problem with them calling those cil- cylinders barrels the entire episode. And I know this is a very small nitpick, but but the first time they showed up, when they beamed them up and the cargo came instead of the people, I was like, they sent bombs? <laughs> like, that was my <laughs> first thought. And then they kept referring to them as barrels, and that also bothered me. And I was wondering if anyone in the Federation has ever seen a barrel before. Yes, they have. I mean, Picard is a, a vineyard owner, owner right? <laughs> So. <laughs> no, they have barrels. I think, um, honestly, it may have just been a case where uh, the prop designer just decided to go and was like, you know what, I want to make this tall and skinny. And then somebody was like, that's not a barrel anymore. <laughs> but they didn't call the writer on set to change the line. So to they change just the word, with it. yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I thought it was weird. Um, but, I mean, I found myself the whole entire time being on Beverly's side of this episode of, like, we need to help them. I mean, were, were we not supposed to be on her side? Was I mean, was it written so that Jean-Luc was always in the wrong? Um, well, uh, it's written that Jean-Luc is in the right because that's the, 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 the premise of Star Trek is that, you know, Picard is right. Uh, uh, Picard's interpretation of the Prime Directive is usually supposed to be the correct one. But mm-hmm. they, they do offer... Uh, Crusher as a counterpoint, and, I, and she often is the uh, the compassionate voice against the Prime Directive in these episodes, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I so I appreciate her uh, perspective there. I did too. Yeah, I wish it had been uh, touched on a bit more directly because it ends up just being more of like a subtext. But like, if Crusher could have brought up her Hippocratic oath and how that's in like direct uh, like conflict with the Prime mm-hmm. Directive here, and like she's sworn two oaths here. How is she supposed to fulfill both of them? Never. There's seemingly no way to do that. That's a really good point. Yeah. What do you do when those two things conflict? I think there is a, like a season six episode that is directly about that. Like it's a Crusher centric episode about that. And I don't remember the name of the episode, and I don't. I, I'm struggling to remember all the details, but I, I have a vague recollection that there is one that is Crusher focused, where she did something that was in violation of something. Um. And and she she has to struggle with the ethics of it, right? Interesting. Okay. Oh, this is just an aside, but so remember how in last episode, um, she tore up her her favorite blue jacket to use as like a splint or something. She didn't have a blue jacket this entire episode. <laughs> And I wondered if that was supposed to be like, oh, well, she tore it up saving Jean-Luc and she hasn't gotten a new one or what. But I noticed (laughs) she didn't have her favorite blue jacket this entire episode. She was jacketless. Yeah. I love her jacket, though, so I noticed. I love any time you get a variation on, like, the the, the standard outfit. Um, Like, Picard gets a suede jacket in season five Mm. that I actually... uh, happened to own one of those that was like a, an official uh, replica made. It was like 200 bucks. It's pretty nice. Or in like the original series when uh, Kirk had that, that wraparound tunic, the green one. Anytime there's like a, a special costume piece mm-hmm. for like one character, I really like it. Um, I think in uh, Voyager when um, uh, Roxanne Dawson was pregnant, they had uh, Bellana wear like, a a, a a jacket like an engineer jacket kind of a thing to to hmm. hide that um but it looks nice yeah mm-hmm. i know the kirk wraparound thing you're talking about too which is a cool looking one. Oh, i love that it's one of my favorite costume pieces mm-hmm. i don't remember which episode specifically but i remember there is a like a klingon like a uh like more adorned version of like a klingon uniform like it shows up on like one klingon and then 
almost every Klingon-centric episode after that, multiple Klingons show up wearing it. It's just like, <laughs> they just really liked how this looked, right? <laughs> <laughs> or once they had it made, they were like, now that we have this made, we can continue to use it. Yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah, um, I, I appreciate uh, seeing um, the Klingon development throughout the series, because we've only had, like, one Klingon episode uh, this season. And... Uh, where they had all the same, uh, they used the same mold for for the foreheads of all of the Klingons <laughs> that showed up, other than Worf. Yeah, and uh, you know there was a lot of just okay, we've got these props left over from the movies where the Klingons showed up, so we'll just use all of that. Uh, and then eventually they get uh, Ronald Moore joins the uh, the writer writers room, and he's like, you know what? Wait, 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 Ronald D. Moore as in Ronald Battle D. Moore Galactica. Do you, hmm. do you know why he made Battlestar Galactica? No, I don't actually. Because he had done Roswell before that. <laughs> because after uh, Deep Space Nine ended, he joined the writers' room of Voyager and quit after six episodes because the studio was like, "You can't have any long-running story arcs." And he had just come off Deep Space Nine, which had like a two-season arc of a, 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 of war, and he's just like, I-, "I can't deal with this. I can't deal with you doing the reset button every week on the ship that's lost in space." All alone with no support. So then he's like, why don't I write that show? And then it's Battlestar Galactica. (laughs) Well, I love Battlestar. You know that. Speaking of Battlestar, just excited to share this. There's rumor that there's a Bo-Katan show coming. And I would love to see Katie get a show where she gets to be the star again. Oh, I, I love Katie Sackhoff. I've got a I've got a photo with Katie Sackhoff. I know you have a photo <laughs> with Katie Sackhoff. <laughs> Every time I see it, I get jealous because it's not just Katie Sackhoff. It's uh, Trisha Helfer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was actually when I got that photo. Um, they hadn't cast Captain Marvel yet, and so there was a rumor that Katie Sackhoff might be playing Carol Danvers. Then so I asked her, and she's like, "I don't think that's happening." She would make mm. a great Carol Danvers. Actually. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. Just a good one. I just watched Endgame again last night, and now I'm thinking about it. She would make it excellent. Yeah. Anyway, we're on a tangent, but I love Katie (laughs) Sackhoff. Mm -hmm. (laughs) One thing that I'm really concerned about, um, I don't recall it ever being referred to in the episode. Uh, Do we have any idea if the withdrawals from Felicium have any sort of mortality rate? Because Picard definitely makes it sound as though, like, oh, I mean, they're going to feel bad for a while, but it'll all be okay. Right, whereas withdrawal in real life kills people. I've had that thought, too. I had that thought, too, and it seems like if it if the withdrawal would have killed them, that Beverly would have mentioned that, or mm-hmm. one of them would have mentioned it. I mean, I think they, they said that they were dying from a plague, but they didn't really mention, like, death counts, and maybe it's just withdrawal makes you feel like you're dying somebody who's been on a lot of medications on and off my whole life and various different pain medications because of my chronic illness and having to change them it does feel like you're dying when when you're withdrawing from those medications it feels like you are literally dying yeah but it would definitely interfere with this the, the big lie here that it is still a plague if like Okay, so we looked at it, and nobody has died of this in the ha- past 190 years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's true. But they're both kind of stupid, right? Because they neither of them has developed their educational system. One they haven't has- developed an FDA that would r- recognize that the, the, the Sackler aliens have been pushing uh, OxyContin on everyone. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, I texted you in the middle of the episode when I was watching it, and I was like, what's the name of that guy who went to jail? He had the Wu-Tang album, because like they reminded me of that guy, yeah. <laughs> oh, Martin Shkreli, the pharma bro? Yeah. yeah. Speaking of Mark- Martin Shkreli... Uh- 
does it feel like this episode, and maybe this is not an okay thing to say, uh, especially in season one, does it feel like this episode could have used more Ferengi presence? Yeah, if the aliens had been Ferengi instead of, like, a symbiotic relationship, then maybe Picard would have, like... Yeah, if it had been Ferengi, Picard would have intervened. Yeah, he would have, 100%, because he has... Everybody has a bias against the Ferengi. Right, but, like, if the, the planet that's being exploited by the Ferengi, like, if they're not a Federation planet, then he wouldn't... You would think he wouldn't interfere. I think if if this, like... I, I don't know why I'm attached to this idea of this being a bad two-parter episode instead of an all-right <laughs> single episode. If this had been a bad two-parter, that would be the good reveal in the second episode that, like, wait a minute, the Ferengi are behind this. Especially because of exploiting people for profit. That that does seem very Ferengi. Mm-hmm. Also because, like, uh, so many times in the first season, we've seen Picard go, oh, something's going wrong. Is it the Ferengi? Are the Ferengi it's behind the it? Ferengi. Could it be the Ferengi? And it's never the Ferengi. We've only had two Ferengi episodes. Well, like Roddenberry wanted to build the Ferengi up as the the big antagonistic uh, alien species in the first season, right? Yeah, they were supposed to be the new Klingons, but they had butts on their heads. And nobody took them seriously. <laughs> they do have butts on their heads. Every time you say that, it makes me laugh. <laughs> it definitely feels like a missed opportunity here. This could have been a good showcase for them as like genuinely insidious villains. Yeah. Yep. You're yep, right. I like Missed that opportunity. Point. Uh, I'm going to <laughs> yep, rewrite in this episode. It was the Ferengi and Picard helped the planet. There we go. <laughs> now that we've wiped that up, <laughs> so wrap this episode up. We're good to go. At least that way Picard does something because like, there's just no resolution here, is there? My husband who watches the shows with me when I'm preparing to do the podcast was like, I bet Beverly's going to like hypo spray those two with the drugs so they get addicted. <laughs> I was like, not a bad idea, actually. Or just make them some lentil soup. Right. Or just make them some lentil soup they'd give their birthright up for. <laughs> yeah, it definitely feels like for the first 20 minutes, we have Tasha Yar is sort of like an MVP. For the next 20 minutes, Beverly Crusher's an MVP. And mm-hmm. then for those like last four minutes, Picard does nothing but acts as though he resolved everything. It reminds me of the uh, the Leonard Nimoy jo- joke from Simpsons. Uh, you didn't even do anything, didn't I? <laughs> and then he beams out. <laughs> that is so true, though. He really didn't do anything other than... Nothing. No, he did nothing. I don't so, know. <laughs> one thing I found out, and I, I, I knew I recognized the actors, um, but uh, Sobi and Tajan, their actors, uh, were both in The Wrath of Khan. Mm. Uh, uh, Sobi was played by Judson Scott, and he played uh, Joaquin, who was uh, Khan's lieutenant. And Merritt Buttrick, who played Tajan, he played Kirk's son, David. Oh, wow. Yeah. Kirk had a son in The Wrath of Khan? Yeah. It's been a long time since I've seen it. Okay. My brain is like, <laughs> okay. It's understandable you'd forget that they do write the son out in the next movie. Okay. That's probably why I just forgot it existed. Yeah. <laughs> but then I also found out, unfortunately, that Tijan was uh, uh, Merritt Buttrick's last uh, acting role. He died of AIDS like a year later. Oh, that's sad. Yeah. Oh, wow, that's, that's awful, yeah. There's actually, a, there's a lot of that going around in the 80s. Um, yeah. The, the gay costume designer I mentioned, the reason that he's only a costume designer for the first season is because he died of AIDS. It was a real epidemic. I know people don't really talk about it anymore, but, like, people were dying, like, all the time. And, I mean, we 
I don't know, like it was such a big thing, and you, and I was I was born in '79, so I was a kid and I was aware of its impact. But I was raised in a house where it was like, well, they got what they deserved because Jesus yeah. or whatever. And so mm-hmm. it's something as an adult I've had to come to grips with that this entire thing happened within a large community of people that I'm now closely, you know, involved with, and we don't talk about it as much. You know, gay guys, older gay guys talk about it some, but, like, it seems like a lot of it is kind of just swept under the rug, you know? Yeah. You run into the problem of, like, the people who would be most likely to talk about it are are the ones who died. Are gone. Yeah, and that's why you kind of have to help them have a voice, you know? Uh, and that's a big reason why people were like, why do we all of a sudden have all these gay kids? And I'm like, we we always had all these gay kids. Yep. Your generation just lost all of theirs. Mm-hmm. I know that like uh, it's definitely a blind spot for Gene Roddenberry, as interested as he was in so many social justice issues. Do you know, is there an episode of Star Trek that really tries to like draw attention to the AIDS epidemic? Because I didn't realize that it was happening like around the show in the way that it was, like losing a costume designer, losing like a... Uh, right. Uh, guest actors from episodes to that degree no there was an episode of star trek enterprise that talked about uh aids um mm-hmm. in, in a roundabout way it, it was a uh, a vulcan disease that was transmitted through mind melds that uh to paul has um and it was m- more about the stigma of it the episode's called stigma mm-hmm. uh and i think that had been like like uh upn was doing like a a, a thing where like uh for that month like every show was going to do like uh, uh either an aid centric episode or like you know like a socially minded socially focused episode because enterprise is early early 2000s right yeah so that would that would be uh, uh a little late on the uh, on the aids epidemic but uh so you know i mean as far as uh you know uh gay issues in star trek they they were always a little late we didn't get an official gay character until 2017 I was going to say Stamets, right? Yeah. Do you think there are other episodes of Star Trek that um, can be summarized by memes to the degree that this one can? Because this whole episode is they feed us poison, so we buy their cures while they suppress our medicine. (laughs) (laughs) There's, I don't know how many other episodes that, um, that can be just summed up as um, a a Saturday uh, afternoon special. A very special episode of Blossom. Yeah. Do we ever like in any, other materials of Star Trek, do we ever find out what happened with the Brekkian and Onarans? I would nope. assume they would have to go to war, but like at some point. Uh, no, uh, it's uh, never brought up again, although um, Lower Decks really likes to uh, have episodes where they like go to planets that were visited in other uh, series and find out what happens to them afterwards. So who knows, maybe future season of Lower Decks gets to visit that planet and find out what happened. That would be, be cool. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Well, I, I do know... There's one thing that this episode was missing, and it needed at the end for Sonic the Hedgehog to show up and say, that's no good. (laughs) Yeah, ideally. um, I did feel like um, the ending of the episode also felt weird, even without the, even if we're not getting into the fact that there wasn't really much of a resolution, it felt like there was like a bit of extra stuff there on the bridge to close out the episode, like with Picard going, I don't care, let's just get some distance between us and this system. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it felt like, I don't know, it felt like, I also, I know what you mean, I didn't know how to describe it, it felt like, let's try to make it feel like everything's normal and we're ending the episode and everything is going back to okay, but it's not quite, like, it felt off. It doesn't quite have the impact of, let's get the hell out of here. (laughs) 
<laughs> now you're going to make me go on a tangent about City on the Edge of Forever, but I'll save that for another day. Well, I think that's it for today. Thanks for joining us. I'm Ari. And I'm Gayfish. And I'm Silent. And until next time, live long and prosper. Thank you for listening. You can find more episodes on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Twitter at RestBothWorlds. Join our Patreon at patreon.com slash restofbothworlds for bonus content and hear your name at the end of each episode.